0: For the choir director a Psalm of David. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. They have all turned aside together. They have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Do all the workers of wickedness not know who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great dread, for God is with the righteous generation. You would put to shame the counsel of the afflicted, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores his captive people, Jacob will rejoice and Israel will be. Glad. Let's pray together. Father, God, thank you for your word. Thank you for its truth. Father, thank you for the blessing that it is to us. Father, convict our hearts and transform our minds today by the truth of your word. Father, help us to see ourselves in this text. Father, help us to see our deliverance in Christ Jesus. Father, help us to live our lives by your grace and for your glory, according to the mercy. And the salvation that comes from the work of Jesus Christ. And we ask it in his name. Amen. So this morning, um, if you've been with us and if you've been walking through um, the, this, this um, series with us together. You know that previously there was a psalm already that expressed this idea of the fool saying in his heart that there's no God. I've always had a profound liking for Psalm 14, mostly because uh, I, I see myself in it quite a bit, especially the first four verses or so. It is also quite profound that in Romans chapters one through three, especially the closing part of of the end of the the declaration of man's sinfulness that Paul expresses in the in the front, in the middle of Romans chapter three, he concludes his indictment of all humanity with a number of the verses that are found here in Psalm 14 This is uh, an incredibly convicting passage of scripture. And so it is very easy for us, though, who are religious people, who are people who have been involved in religious things for a good part of our lives, who attend religious services like the one that we're at today to read the first line and instantly assume this doesn't have anything to do with me. Let's look, Uh, we'll just kind of prove the point. So the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Depending on your background and depending on the conversion experience you had into Christ, the vast majority of people that are in the room had no meaningful experience with a struggle with intellectual atheism. Many of us, this is not true of everyone, but many of us had families that were religious, parents that were religious, someone that cared about us, someone that told us about Jesus. We found ourselves going to church as children or or as teenagers or whatever, vacation Bible schools and a variety of other things. That's not true for everybody. I know that's the case. But the vast portion of people probably even sitting in this room today Have at least some similarity of religious background. There is an awareness of the gospel, awareness of Jesus, awareness of who he was, and maybe even some sort of deep, intimate connection with that experience from an early state in life. Now, I know that's not true of everyone. I've had some conversations with some of you and some of you have. Much more complex testimonies than that. And you didn't know anything about the Lord or you didn't care anything about the Lord or it's a much later life conversion. And that's fine. But for a lot of people, when they read Psalm 14, because of their background, they read that first line and they kind of check out. Well, I've never said in my heart that there's no God. This doesn't have anything to do with me. Clearly, I know I'm foolish in some regards, but I'm not this kind of fool because I've always thought that there was a God. I've never entertained the idea that there might not be a divine being. Well, the problem with that is that David is not strictly speaking about intellectual atheism as we understand it today. In these psalms where there's a declaration about the fool saying in his heart that there is no God. This is a declaration about practical atheism. Notice where the fool says it. the fool does not say it in his mind. He does not say it in his intellectual epicenter. He says it in his heart. The scriptural metaphor for the central location of human emotion and will and longing and desire And I know that people do ridiculous things. Well, these crazy people thought that you thought with your heart, ha, 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 ha. And then they go to Hallmark and buy a Valentine's Day card for the person that they love talking about how much of their heart moves them. We all understand that this is a metaphor. We all understand that this is a a way of giving embodiment to the human experience. And when David says the fool has said in his heart, he's not Devoiding the reality of mind and thinking, the the heart and the Hebrew thinking concept is the center of human desire, the center of human will, the center of human longing. Much in the same way that we use it in our modern context. I love you with all of my heart. Nobody envisions the organ that beats blood. Like nobody does that. If you do, you're weird. I'm just gonna throw that out there. Oh, they love me with the. That's just strange. That's not what they mean. I love you with everything I am. I love you with my longings, my desires, my hopes, my emotions. This is the idea. The fool in that region of the human experience has said there is no God. This is a longing for no accountability. This is an assumption of being able to get away with it. There are things that I want to do. There are ways that I want to be. There are activities that I want to be involved in. There's a course of life that I want to follow. And I don't want any accountability. I don't want anyone telling me I can't do this. I want to be able to get away with whatever it is that I'm about to embark on. And I don't want any hindrances in my way of someone trying to explain to me why the course of action that I'm about to take is not the best course of action. Newsflash. All of us at some point in our lives have been that kind of fool. Where we have said in our heart, there is no God. Because I'm just going to do whatever I want to do. And I'm not really worried about the consequences. So this morning, let's not ignore this text. Because this text is universal to the human experience. You say, how do you say that? Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And when we sin as image bearers, we're essentially declaring in our hearts, in our minds and with our lives, there's no God. Because God has given the mandate Of human behavior. This is what the human person should be like. Should look like. Should act like. There's an oughtness to human existence. We ought to reflect the image of God. And when we don't do that. We are the fool saying in our heart there's no God. Every time we sin, we're participating in practical atheism, a declaration of our denial of the existence and glory of God. That's what we're doing. So this morning, please don't check out on me because you read the first sentence and you go, "Ah, I've never really had a problem with atheism. This isn't about me. This isn't what this text is about. So I want you to consider the qualities of this person who has said in their heart that there's no God. Let's walk through the list and kind of see has at any point our lives resonated with this. They are corrupt. That word for corrupt means that they have been ruined. It also carries with it the connotation of one who causes trouble. Have you ever at any point in your life caused unnecessary, inappropriate, ungodly trouble for someone else? If the answer is yes, you are one of the fools who said in your heart that there is no God. If the answer is no, I just want to inform you that you're lying to yourself. So, Philip, that's rude. No, it's just true. All of us at some point in our lives have created conflict and trouble that was not necessary and inappropriate and ungodly for another human being. We've all done it. That is one of the qualities of this foolish person who said in their heart, there is no God. Next, it says. Look, look, look here. This is all still just the first person our English Bibles they are corrupt they they cause trouble they have committed abominable deeds you say well that's not me that that phrase means unholy actions actions that are not holy the scripture actually lays out some of these actions and gives to them the the, the the reference of abomination. Of course the one that is classic in our culture. Because it's the hot topic. It's the hot button. It's the political savvy one. Is in the Old Testament where it talks about homosexuality being an abomination to the Lord. Everybody knows that one. What a lot of people don't recognize though. Is that there's some other places. And the language of abomination is things that God hates. There's a lot of other places in the scripture that talk about things God hates. That he views as incredibly unholy. They include things like pride. Lying lips. Creating division among brothers. And a host of other things that almost all of us are. Responsible for at some way at some point. In some measure in our lives. And there's a bunch of other ones too. We could run through those. But the reality of it is is that. All of us have fallen under the umbrella of even those things stated in the Old Testament as abominations. At some point, on some level, we've connected with at least one of these. But it's not just those plainly stated. It is any unholy action, any action that goes contrary to the holy nature of God that we should be reflecting as image bearers. And so if I have ever done, said or thought anything that does not properly reflect the character of God, I have engaged in abominable deeds. That's what I've done. And then David expands it. And Paul uses this in a very profound way in Romans chapter 3. There is no one who does good. No one. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there's any who understand. And we'll expound that a little bit more in a second. But this is an unsettling statement. And it's one that really makes a lot of people angry, especially people who don't Believe there is no one who does good, but I do good stuff all the time. That's the response usually. I donate time, I donate energy, and I donate money, and I help people across the street unload things, and I'm, you know, whatever, whatever. You list out all the manner of good, kind acts that people do. I do good all the, see, clearly this shows how ridiculous your religion is, because clearly people do good stuff all the time, and this says that nobody ever does anything good if they're not in the faith. That's just crazy talk. Well, it just depends, I suppose, on your source definition of good. If you're defining good based on just some sort of cultural standard that we've all generally agreed on, then sure, people do good stuff all the time. Problem is, that's not the definition of good. What is the definition of what is good? Who is the measure of what is good? Who is the one who establishes that we can call something to be good? Guess what? It's not you and it's not me and it's not our culture and it's not our society. And it's not the awards that you get from organizations. And it's not the placards of people saying, what a great guy. This is not the standard of goodness. The standard of goodness is God himself. He declares a thing to be good or a thing to be wicked. And it says in the scriptures that even the prayers of a wicked man are an abomination to God. Back to that word. Prayer is a good thing. It's one of the means of grace. You don't get a more profound like everybody's going to agree, especially from a religious context, of something that's good. Praying's good. How to pray, especially if you're praying to the right God in the right way. That's a good thing to do. And the Scripture says that when a wicked man prays. God hates it. It's not good. When a wicked man offers sacrifices to the one true God, the sacrifices the way the Old Testament said to make them, on the day it said to make them, the way it said to make them, to the God it said to make them to. Wicked! If it is not from a heart that is truly bent toward the Lord doesn't matter how good the thing is on paper. If God does not declare it good, it is wicked. There is no one who does good. That kind of closes things in really tight. I mean, really tight. And why is that? Why is it that no one does good on their own apart from the work of Christ? The Lord has looked down. By the way, we just got through the first verse. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. And what is the answer? They have all turned aside. Together, they have become corrupt. And if the first time around wasn't enough in poetic parallelism... David declares it again more emphatically. There is no one who does good, not even one. Friends, there's no one who does good. There's no one who understands the things of God. There's no one who seeks after the things of God. Everyone has turned aside to their own things. No one does good emphasis, not even one, not one. Friends, the summation the goodness of humanity is a falsehood. Any system of thought that starts with the notion that people are basically neutral or people are basically good is a lie from the pits of hell itself. It is not true. Not true. We are each in our sinning fools declaring that there is no God. And apart from the transformation that comes from the gospel, this is the condition of us all, all of us. This is what makes Christianity such a profound religion. Every other religious system has some sort of a slither of, well, you know what? You should try to do the best that you can in some way. Appease the gods, make some sort of offering, do some sort of transformative action in your life to improve yourself, to connect yourself with the divine, to go on a a journey and a pathway towards realization and self-actualization Sounds like I'm on like a modern thing right now with all the hashtags. These are all lies that are thousands of years old. And every religious system has these lies in it. In Islam, you have the five pillars of Islam. Most of them are actions that you try to do. In Buddhism, there's the emptying of the self. In Hinduism, and the variety of deities, there's usually some sort of effort at connecting with these realities. In Far Eastern mysticism, connecting across those principles, this trying to morph into the great unknown and the emptiness and achieving nirvana and all these other sorts of things and the emptying the self and the filling of space and all these sorts of things. Even in ancient... Uh, uh, Judaism, the reality of the need to participate in the sacrificial system and how that became this emptiness instead of a transformed heart. It was just a ritualistic occurrence that would take place and we could run through a host of other kinds of religious systems. And even some versions of Christianity have morphed into what they should not be. But friends, the classic historic message of the gospel is this you can do nothing to save yourself. There's no action that can be done. There's no attitude that can be cultivated. There's no good little bit of germ seed in you that can grow into a blossoming, decent human being. This does not exist. You, to your core, are in rebellion against God. You, by nature, are a child of wrath. You are a son or a daughter of Adam. And you are in rebellion against the Most High God. And everything that you do, even those things that have the outward appearance of goodness, are abominable and corrupt up to God because they are not flowing from the source of being an image bearer. They're flowing from the source of your brokenness. And you need an act of God's grace to enter into his kingdom. It's completely different from every other religion in that regard. Because it's not really about religion. It's about transformative relationships. God stepping into this world in the form of a man, the incarnate one, Jesus Christ, and declaring, I have come to fix what you have broken. So what's our hope then? If this is the condition of all of us. If all of us, whenever we sin, declare with our lives that our hearts are singing the song that there is no God, what? Is our only hope. In verse five, a transition begins. The fool is now in dread. He's in great dread. There they are in great dread. These fools who have said these things, who act this way, whose lives are marked this way. Why? Because God himself is with the righteous generation. Such an odd transition that David uses here. He says here that the fool, in verse 6, would put to shame those who are afflicted. He would do this thing. He would crush those who are trusting in the Lord. He would impress upon him this need to abandon the things of God. But the Lord is the refuge of the afflicted. Friends, we talked about previously, but just as a way of reminder, the concept of refuge in the Old Testament, particularly in the Psalms, is a place of safety, a place of hope and a place of joy. And it is such that that place guarantees these things will be yours. It's not just a longing, but it is definitive. When you get into this space, you will indeed be safe from all the terror that is outside of that space. Friends, there are no safe spaces on earth. Kiddos, they don't have them at your campus. They might have them marked as a corner, but it's not real. The only true safe space that you have is the refuge of the Lord. And if you have that, it doesn't matter where your physical body is. Because the Lord is omnipresent. And so, how does this work then? How does this work? How does this hope truly come? Notice the declaration that David makes. David is making it as a future hopeful declaration Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. In our English translations. To make it flow better and to make it more sensible because it is very difficult for us to embrace and to grab a hold of fully and wholeheartedly the notion of what Zion truly is in the scripture. We have to keep it a place. And so the language that we use in almost all of our English translations is would come out of or some version of that where it's a proximity of moving from one place to another. Friends, I I want to as. Strongly as I can emphasize that the most accurate way to translate this phrase from the Hebrew is that, oh, that the salvation of Israel would be Zion. Not just come out of Zion. Would be Zion. Zion, where does my salvation come from? David longed for it to come from Zion, but praise be to the Lord. Our salvation is Zion. It is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He is Zion. And David was waiting for that salvation to come. He was longing for the appearance of salvation to be found in Zion. Friends, I want to tell you that the Lord Jesus Christ has come into the world. You know, I don't usually ask for amens, but if you're a Christian today, that's a super great spot to say amen, that the Lord Jesus Christ has come into the like the only reason you're here. And even thinking about these things, I care one, a little bit about what's going on in this moment and the means of grace that are happening from the declaration of God's word is that the Lord Jesus Christ has come into the world. This is the reality of the Christian faith, is that we had absolutely no hope at all. Scripture even says that about the Gentiles in particular in one place, that they had no hope and no God in this world. None. That was us. And what fixed that? I did some great work. I prayed some prayer. I put in some sort of effort. I went through some sort of ritual. I cultivated that divine spirit in me and had it grow into this goodness that was there that connected with the universe. No. What is it that caused the transformation to take place? The God of the universe veiled himself in flesh and stepped into existence and fixed what was broken. Our salvation was found in Zion and Zion showed up here. He united heaven with earth. He yielded himself to death, death on a cross. He took our guilt, He took our shame, He took our place. The death that we deserve to die, Christ Jesus died for us. The life that we were supposed to live, that we could not live, because there is none who does good, there is not one who is righteous, there is not one who understands, there is not one who seeks God. He lived for us. And then... He made an exchange. He said, I will take your sin. I'll take your wickedness. I'll take your wretchedness. I'll take your brokenness. I'll take your death. And I'll trade with you my righteousness and my life. What? He apparently had never read the art of the deal. That's not how this works. He's getting the the worst end of this thing. Like you're giving me everything. And you're taking from me in exchange for everything. Absolutely nothing of value. Like nothing of value. I mean, like to put it in semi-modern investment terms. I'm going to give you a hundred million shares of Amazon today. Give me all of the old shares of Enron you had from a bunch of years ago when it tanked. Let's make the swap. What? No, that what? There's got to be a catch. Yeah, there is a catch. There's a catch. Here it is. You ready? Ready? the catch. He demands full allegiance to his kingdom. There's no living in the city of man and playing with the toys that you had there, wallowing around in the dirt and the mud of that existence and claiming the benefits of the kingdom of God. He has thrown the doorway of heaven open. He himself has walked across the prep precipice. He himself has come into the city of man. He has come to your lifeless soul because we are dead in our trespasses and sins. He has snatched you up from the contamination of your cancerous sickness to this world and he has thrown you on his back and he has carried you across to this great kingdom and he has dropped you down on his operating table and he has snatched out your heart of stone and he has replaced it with a heart of flesh and he has breathed into to you the breath of life and he has cleaned you and he has clothed you and he has crowned you and he has set you on a throne so that you would never go back there again why would we do that why would we do that and friends I tell you this morning and it's sad but it is true we in our lives every time we sin we are stepping our toe back over here going I miss it I wish I had the meat from Egypt instead of the stuff we have out here in this wilderness. Jesus, you really are amazing and you've done a really lot of great stuff for me. And these clothes are good and this crown is great and that throne's amazing. This feast on this banquet table is fantastic. And I I know that you call me like a a, a ruler and a prince in your kingdom and I judge even the angels. And that's cool. But wow, you you have no idea how amazing this mud hole is. It's awesome. Just for a hot minute, I want to say in my heart that, that you're not even real. Like this is what I want. Friend, that's the fool that David is talking about in this psalm. He's not talking about intellectual atheism. He's not talking about some YouTube videos that you've watched and some Google stuff that you've looked up and a couple of books that you've read about how God's not great or this, that, and the other. He's not. David's not even scratching the surface on that nonsense. David is declaring to the people of God, whenever our hearts move toward corruption and sin and rebellion and shameful living, we are declaring with our very lives that we do not believe in our God. And what hope do we have? What hope do we have? Flip, if you will, with me as we close this morning to first, John. First John. Beginning in the first chapter. You know, I was just going to start at eight, but let's back all the way up to one. What was from the beginning? Because remember, this is about the incarnation of Christ and him coming into the world and doing a thing that we could never do. And the grace that he has brought to us by our salvation being in Zion. What was from the beginning? And what we have heard What we've seen with our eyes, what we've looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, Jesus Christ himself, and the life was manifested and we've seen it and we testify and proclaim to you eternal life, uh, which was with the father and has been made manifest to us what we have seen and what we have heard. We proclaim to you also so that you, too, may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the father and his son, Jesus Christ. This message we heard from him, we announce to you that God is light. There's no darkness in him at all. And if we say that we have fellowship with him, yet we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth, practical atheism. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all of our sins. But Philip, I still struggle with sin. Where is my hope? If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is in us. Good deal. You acknowledge step one, You, it, it, the existence of abiding sin and the struggle that you have with it because you've not reached glory yet. So what happens if we confess our sins? He is faithful And righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Fast forward, chapter two. My little children, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. And if you do sin, we have an advocate That word, by the way, is the Greek word parakletos. It means intercessor, the one who's called alongside of us. It's, the Holy Spirit is called that in the New Testament. We have one who comes alongside of us. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, the wrath bearing sacrifice for our sins and not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. And we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. And what is the commandment that Jesus Christ offers us? It's not the 613 that you see listed in the Old Testament. What is the commandment that Jesus sends to us? Love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The declaration we made over these children this morning. And the second one is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is the command of Christ to us, his people. Love God, love people. And the Apostle Paul makes a declaration that those who are in Christ... And have the fruit of the spirit. It is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Against these things, there is no law. Friends, it's not a checklist. This thing that I'm talking to you about today, this salvation that comes from Jesus and this living in Him and this being vibrant in Him and this movement away from the corruption that is truly ours in Adam to this righteousness that has become ours in Christ. It is not me pulling out my checklist going, I did all of the great Christian stuff that I could today. It's an acknowledgement daily that left to myself, I am everything that David said in Psalm 14. I'm corrupt, full of unholy actions, not good, not understanding, not seeking God, turning aside, becoming corrupt. I am... I am one who has abandoned the image of God. But in Christ, through his redemption and his work and his carrying me lifeless and giving me life in his kingdom, I am now made like him. I am made holy like him. I am declared righteous like him. And all that he demands of me is that I confess my sin and give glory to him for saving me. That's it. Love God. Love people. That's it. say, Philip, that's way too easy. Thank God it's easy because we're all sheep and sheep are dumb animals. When I look around at the other religions of the world... All the complexities of everything that has to be done and the way you got to sit and the way you got to stand and how you got to bow and the posture you got to have and the sacrifice you got to make and the things you have to recite and the things you have to say. And, and this is when you have to do it and the time and the place and where. And I look at true, raw, real Christianity. And all that Jesus asks of me is be broken over your sin. Oh, I, I'm, I'm clearly broken. It's <laughs> nothing right with me. Every, in fact, everything's wrong with me. I, Sign me up for the acknowledgement of brokenness. That's a no-brainer. Acknowledge your brokenness. Got it. Glory in the fact that Jesus will fix you. That's it. That's it. Say, Philip, that's way too easy. No, friends, that's way too gracious and glorious is what that is. That's way too kind of God to be that way toward us. He didn't make it hard. He didn't make it complex. He didn't make it overwhelming. He didn't make it stressful. He made it beautifully simple. You are dead. I give you life. Acknowledge that you're broken. Acknowledge that I'm glorious. Love God. Love people. Friends, where does our salvation come from? It comes from that place. Not what I did. Not what I'm doing, not what I might do, not my best effort, not my best work, not my ritual, not my religious activity, not my confessing and not my repenting of my repentance or any of the other kinds of things. My salvation comes from Christ. And friends, as soon as we turn our attention away from ourselves. And our effort and our work and our striving and turn our attention to the glory of Jesus and his grace, the sooner we will be able to say, like David did in the psalm, Jacob and Israel will exalt and rejoice in the Lord. Why? Because my heart will be filled with the joy of the knowledge of salvation that comes only from Jesus friends, it doesn't matter what you're going through. Really, it doesn't. There's a lot of people in this room going through a lot of stuff. And that stuff is overwhelming and it's stressful and it's hard. And you feel like you're going to break. But it is nothing compared to this truth that you've heard today. That salvation is found in Christ. And the fullness of joy. The fullness of joy. Is our gift now. Because I was dead. But now I'm alive. I was lost. But now I'm found. I was blind. But now I see. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you that our salvation doesn't just come from Zion. Our salvation is Zion, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that he does not ask for us to turn over a new leaf, to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, to try to improve ourselves, to make ourselves more appealing to him. Rather, Father, he comes to us in the fullness of our wretchedness and our brokenness. And he gives us life. And when we sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all of our unrighteousness. And when we struggle and when we suffer and when we experience pain, either at our own moral failings or the moral failings of those around us, he is our refuge. Our place of safety and joy. Father, forgive us. When our attention is turned elsewhere. When we say in our hearts that there is no God. When we abandon. This joy. This beauty, this truth, this goodness. For a sorry, insignificant substitute. Father, turn our attention to the glory of Christ. And may we find all of our hope and joy in him alone. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.